Hello and welcome to a new retirement podcast series brought to you by Connexus Financial, hosted in association with the investment magazine, Professional Planner, and our media and event partner, the Financial Planning Association of Australia. My name is Alex Promos and I'm the head of institutional content and investment magazine. Along with my colleagues, Lawrence Parker-Brown and Matthew Smith, we spent the past five months curating content focused on the most pertinent issues in retirement for both institutional and retail fiduciaries. Since Paul Keating first steered the superannuation guarantee into law in 1992, Australia has been recognised for its accumulation or defined contribution system. However, when it comes to meeting the needs of retirees, such as delivering advice, determining an appropriate investment strategy and navigating a dignified retirement, Australia has a lot to learn. This podcast series offers exclusive access to conversations with thought leaders in the retirement sector as they discuss ways to improve the system. I hope you enjoy the podcast series. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Retirement Podcast Series brought to you by Connexus Financial. I'm Alex Primos, the Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine. Today, I'm joined by Rob Pruge, um, who is, I think, well-known to most of the people in the Australian audience. He was uh, a former asset manager in recent times, been an asset owner and a regulator. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you, Alex. Well, it's a, it's a fascinating time. Um, we've been speaking for probably the last couple of years about super funds and their importance and these, you know, the systemic risk that comes alongside uh, super funds in Australia. Um, you've spoken at a number of our conferences and written a number of pieces. I guess maybe give a bit of context to, to the listeners in terms of how things have changed in your mind um, or maybe not changed in terms of the, the mega super funds. Sure. I guess I'm a, I'm a beneficiary of having lived in Japan uh, during their deflationary period. Amongst other things, uh, as a student of economics, it allowed me to experience firsthand how uh, the economy, the financial markets, and the financial services adapt under such extreme conditions. Um, where it was really quite interesting, however, was my observation of the formation of GPIF, the world's largest pension fund of over 1 trillion US. Um, At the time, I remember, uh, again, as a new resident of Tokyo, I remember the puzzle and puzzlement I had with regards to something called Daiko Henjo. And Daiko Henjo is a Japanese word uh, to formally give back. So similar to when you give uh, a business card in Japan, it's a very formal exercise you hold. Uh, the business card with both hands when you hand it over. Well, the process is Daiko Henjo. And what Daiko Henjo meant in Japanese financial services was a little bit different. It was to relate uh, on how do defined benefit plans manage these uh, tumultuous and highly erratic financial markets. As many a CFO of corporate Japan complained at the time, their concern was really that they're doing everything right in managing the company. They're doing everything right in managing the salaries and employees. Yet for reasons out of their own control, um, their unrealized liability keeps on growing as markets continue to fall. And so they said it would kind of have our hands between our backs and handcuffed in as much that uh, the markets are controlling or having an influence on how we're managing our business because we have these pension obligations to which we must pay in international accounting standards 
requires them, of course, to account appropriately. So the government had an idea, and the Daikohenjo uh, was that you could formally hand back the DB plan's pension back to the government, where the government would take any responsibility, fiscal and fiduciary responsibility, were the markets to continue to go against a fully funded plan. Now, the two conditions that the government imposed before they added this Daikohenjo is that one, each defined benefit plan must be fully funded, and two, each individual member of the pension plan must be able to account exactly how much they're due. Now, if you were a Japanese CFO, this would be a no-brainer. Uh, it would be simple. You know, I could, we're fully funded, that's fine. I can get this liability and these uh, ramifications from these tumultuous, difficult markets back off my balance sheet. And I can just focus on managing my business. And from that, of course, PFA and GPIF in Japan benefited immensely with huge asset growth. And they now are, again, as I said at, earlier, they're now the largest single uh, pension plan in the world. Now, if we look at what's happening here in Australia, that is perhaps a long ways away. One, we have defined um, a contribution, not defined benefit. Two, uh, we, depending on how one looks at the coronavirus chaos, uh, we are not in a deflationary spiral as Japan. And three, I guess more importantly, is that the whole idea of superannuation when introduced in the late 80s and the early 90s was to take away the liability of tax holders and give it back to the individual members. Uh, so unlike DB, in defined contribution, each member holds the financial responsibility of the fund. Now, where Daiko Hendro could, however, come into play is if the markets themselves continue to make it nearly impossible for super funds to deliver their stated objective of CPI plus two or three, plus a one in seven year negative return and a 10% maximum drawdown. If those conditions were to persist, it doesn't matter how good a investor you are, it's gonna be very, very difficult to deliver these long-term expectations to which members have signed on for of CPI plus two or three. In such a circumstances, um, it's the financial markets which make it nearly impossible, not the efficiency or cost effectiveness, or dare I say, how well structured any super fund is. And this really is what had me thinking with regards to many of the regulators uh, endorsing, encouraging uh, merger of the funds into a dozen or so or less uh, super funds. And my caveat to that is if we were to go ahead and proceed in such a manner, what happens if one of these 12 funds or less 
suffers some kind of liquidity shock. If we go back during the GFC, one or two funds, industry funds, felt such an experience. However, the industry funds were relatively small and other industry funds were able to accommodate and I guess one could say avoid such a catastrophe from truly eventuating across the market. But if it's a mega fund with 500,000 plus members and with an asset uh, base of, let's say, above, I don't know, uh, 300 uh, uh, billion dollars, how is that going to be accommodated by the industry? Highly unlikely. So what does that mean? Does that mean that the government will sit on their hands and allow this super fund to go under? I don't think so. I don't think there's a democratically elected government that would allow that to ha happen. As uh, someone once said, it's interesting that when profits uh, happen, they're yours. But when losses occur, they they're socialized and belong to everyone. And if you believe in that, even in jest, if you still believe in that concept, then that has to be considered when we assess the implications of pushing the government regulators, encouraging the mega mergers. You know, Alex, I've, I've been fortunate. I've read many fantastic books on pension fund immunization. And a couple of things I've never read in any of these books. One, that bigger is better. Two, that it's all about gross returns. And three, it's all about having the fund with the lowest fees. Hmm. All actuarial and academic books on pension immunization is about net returns. And as the global financial crisis have shown us, small and large firms are vulnerable to such exogenous shocks. And clearly I would argue that that is uh, the case right now, particularly as the shock of the coronavirus flushes its way through the system, the, the, the markets. Notice our way through the system and the markets, not uh, the medical aspect of it. I'm calmly an optimist, but I do believe that we will push through this coronavirus from a health perspective. There will be some tragic losses, uh, clearly, um, but from the point of recovery, uh, this is not an Ebola-like thing. This is not 1918 uh, virus. This is totally unique. And as such, uh, I'm a believer that that will recover. However, what I'm less uh, confident on is how the economy will adapt once we restart our engines. Because as I once told a friend, for those of us who know uh, mechanics, if I turn off the car for a month, chances are I can turn the car back on. If I turn it off for two months, however, I may have to uh, um, recharge the battery. For three months, I may have to change the oil and recharge the battery. My point is the longer the economy is closed and does not move, the more vulnerable it is the economy becomes and restart. And this has uh, implications, not just in the uh, workforce, but also more importantly, in how we construct a portfolio that's meant to deliver 
a one in, uh, a one in seven negative returns and a maximum drawdown of 10%. Those circumstances coupled with, let's say one uh, uh, potential failure of a mega fund would be enough of a stimulus, I'd suggest, to have the government consider amalgamating all the super into one, two, or three national pension funds. And we could see it all wind down. And I'll, although I am hopeful that won't happen, I cannot tell you with any guarantee that it won't. And again, the conditions coupled with, of course, the, uh, the ramifications of more members in fewer funds have to give you at least a pause to consider that this indeed could happen. Yeah, look, I, I think there's an interesting piece to all that in terms of the moving to smaller and like uh, larger funds and a small number of them. Obviously, you know, the way that industry super funds were set up was a, alongside their industry. Yes. And and we've now got a bit of a problem because that was seen to be great, you know, in the hospitality sector, for example, where you would have all people investing in the same the same fund because that, you know, represented the the needs and member outcomes for people in that sector, right? And that was yes. that's what we've been told. Now we have a situation where whole slabs of the economy are being wiped out in that particular area and the whole investment portfolios of those funds were correlated with the types of people that were in that industry. Yes. That doesn't work now. You know, we have a situation where we've we've created a, a shock to the system, a shock that's hurt particular parts of the of the economy more than others. And these funds are are facing, you know, a bit of a crisis in the sense of maintaining liquidity at the same time as their members now having the ability to withdraw funds and they're not not likely to be paying any more funds either. So is you know is that another way that potentially there's more pressure from regulators to amalgamate funds or to diversify the types of people that sit within their funds as well? Well, I look at it slightly differently. Um, and there's two things to consider. Firstly, is the environment. When superannuation was introduced in the... Uh, in the late 1990s. Uh, of course, we were coming out of the 1987 correction and slowly recovering. Uh, from 1990 till about 2010, uh, the markets, uh, let's call it beta, were more than generous enough to fulfill the need of CPI plus and the risk parameters mentioned earlier. So it didn't really matter the size or how it was configured because the markets were, were more than delivering the results that allowed a worker to immunize their pension liabilities. Uh, but as you know, when the liberals introduced open platform and choice, that began to change. So Aussie Super, as just the one example, is a long way away uh, from where its industry roots began. Um, and now what I would argue many super funds are operating it because they are, they would rather be in the camp that buys and leaves the merger rather than be merged. Uh, the agency risk is now 
at the forefront of how many super funds are managed. So many funds talk about the three legitimate risks. And the first one, of course, is investment risk. The second, of course, is uh, um, uh, liquidity risk. And then the third is some of them now starting to talk about demographic risk or, or diversification of members, that they don't want to have too many, uh, they want to attract the younger workforce. Now, as they start doing this, the other, the other risk that's become probably more dominant um, as we have these rating agencies going out there and, and rating not just on, on uh, uh, net returns and gross returns, but net fees is, as Tom Peters once wrote, that's which gets measured, gets managed. And so I would argue that many super funds these days are cognizant of the need to diversify away from their membership base, but the consequence of that is that there are inadvertently, or directly, depends on your output, managing this agency risk to maximize returns. They all wanna be top quartile. And as I tell many of my friends who are there doing this, just remember, I've never seen a pendulum swing halfway. If you're going to be increasing the risk to maximize the return, when markets correct, you will be perhaps be challenged. And how many of these funds manage, I would argue, this agency risk is through the adoration and the admiration of illiquid assets. Because by including some of these illiquid assets, you introduce, uh, you, or should I say, you take away price transparency. There is no Bloomberg terminal that gives you a minute by minute price of a building. There is no Reuters terminal, which gives you a minute by minute price of an airport. The stock market does that. And so people have been managing that. And I'm not saying that private equity doesn't belong in super funds, but what I am saying is that it was self-perpetuating the uh, beliefs that what it can deliver. And all of a sudden people were going into this and not taking into consideration that the liquidity risk would come back and haunt them. Ironically, uh, one would have had hoped that the GFC was a wake up call given some of the funds had in fact suffered from that. But because the whole market is embedded and uh, loves these sort of agencies that rate super funds, it becomes uh, a prisoner's dilemma. We all know that's the case, but we are managing it to protect the business rather than to ne necessarily better fulfill the long-term goals of investment, liquidity, and demographic risk. Now, initially, my concern with the demographic risk was one that I held much stronger. But now, of course, you've got a true exogenous shock. And by that, the, the word shock implies that no one can predict it. And this has happened and has taken a huge swipe off the members' assets, uh, off the liquid assets, uh, around 30%, some would say. What that's now transpired to 
is that some of these funds that you mentioned, because they had a strong love affair with illiquids, they are now in breach of their liquid illiquid parameters. And when I talk to them, they say, well, look, you know, we think this may be a V-shaped recovery because we agree with you, Rob, that there is an end to this horror and the things will resettle. And that's true. But what if, again, it takes longer than we anticipate and therefore the economy and the markets will need to adjust accordingly? My concern isn't that we won't revert back to a new uh, to, that we won't revert back to a medical norm. I am most hopeful and confident that we will. My concern, however, is that the market norm and the economic norm may look utterly different than what it looked like pre the corona crisis. And this is where, again, the challenges, and this is where, in my humble opinion, where if there is a failure, it will be that that pulls it in, not necessarily the industry roots. The industry roots served it remarkably well because the market conditions were incredibly generous. And two, uh, again, it allowed uh, member engagement to be superior to what it is, it is now. That's not to say that the mega funds don't do member engagement, far from it, they do. But the efficacy of their engagement cannot be compared when their membership base was one third the size. I guess one of the things I wanted to ask is, you know, there has been member engagement because people have seen their returns increasing over the last 10 years, one of the longest bull runs in, in, you know, in history. And, you know, I guess there's now a bit of a, a communication problem that some of these super funds are going to have in terms of what a balanced fund is. You know, if you go back to what the principles of a balanced fund are in terms of CPI plus two or three and a one in seven year loss and a maximum 10% drawdown, uh, well, on the, on the plus side, they've been performing way above that, you know, and maybe that's because the balanced fund hasn't been really calibrated in the right way or markets have, you know, been pricing things incorrectly. And then in terms of the one and seven year loss, well, yeah, that's that's probably what it's been. It's actually been better than that. But in terms of the drawdown now, uh, it's it's going to be pretty you know pretty severe. And if we think about where economics is going in terms of what this recovery looks like, and it isn't this V shaped recovery, and we end up with two, four, five years of really sluggish growth and sluggish um, returns to to pension funds. You know, do super funds really have a challenge in communicating and keeping that member engagement up and this belief around what super is and what it's designed to do? Challenge, yeah. Um, where to begin? With the greatest respect, I would challenge the engagement. Uh, I think the engagement that I've seen, the reporting that I've seen by many super funds um, with great respect has really been no greater than what I uh, see when I turn on the news. Um, and I think what's challenging for some super funds is that they need to, rec some need to recognize that the engagement that is required uh, has to be more personal. Um, they has to know the circumstances of the member. That is very, very difficult to do when you're a mega fund. And I would argue that some of the smaller funds are probably better poised to engage 
if for no other reason that their membership base is smaller and they have a longer history with their membership base. Uh, some of the mega funds, um, they have some of the original members and I'm sure these original members are well uh, versed on how to get the information they want, but they also have a lot of newer members. Some members who were burned after, uh, I guess, the, uh, the retail uh, Haynes Commission and other members that were um, in, uh, inflicted and hurt by the financial crisis and therefore sought security away from an SMSF or, or whatever. Uh, whatever be the case, it's the level of engagement. Uh, and I would argue that uh, some of the funds, the level of engagement isn't necessarily um, one what I would consider commensurate given the level of panic that exists today. Um, it needs to be uh, more personalized. It needs to, and, and again, we're talking to moms and dads, right? And we all have those conversations now over the phone or uh, over Skype or Zoom, where we talk about the markets and we have a very uh, open and frank discussion, uh, regardless of the level of um, financial uh, quotient uh, the person has. And I think it's that kind of discussion that is required. Uh, because now that the government has allowed um, Superfund, uh, sorry, members to withdraw up to $20,000, the temptation of that, particularly those who have lost their jobs, is going to be huge. Uh, I clearly am of the camp that I don't recommend that, um, but I also am pragmatic enough to understand that some people need to feed their families, they need to pay their mortgage, and they need to make sure that their health insurance is up to date, let alone everything else that comes with running a household. I understand that, but again, that is only going to add to this illiquid versus liquid parameters. You've got a very strong falling market, and if this environment were to continue and unemployment were to persist, if not rise, I wouldn't be surprised if more and more members uh, are tempted to draw out of their super fund, therefore pulling down this, the allocation even further lower, the AUM even further uh, lower, and they'll probably have to sell it out of the liquid assets, which is probably why some of the uh, super funds have already begun to revalue mid-stride their illiquid valuations uh, from fear of this uh, actually occurring. Well, this is this is the challenge, right? You've got a situation where asset prices uh, are decreasing and people need to withdraw their money. It's very easy to say and, and run a communications uh, program to try and stop people from withdrawing money and give them more details about the long-term investments of superannuation. But as you you know, I think very correctly spoke about is people have mortgage repayments, they have health insurance that they need to keep up. So that's going to be their focus. Um, and the ability to just liquidate anything in the meantime, uh, and super's now been given the green light that you can just withdraw money. And it seems as though there's really even minimal documentation that you need to provide to, to show. 
um, from some of the conversations that I've had with a couple of CIOs recently. So there is a concern there that this just becomes this, you know, ATM, your super is your ATM. And does that sort of potentially risk the the brand and the and the the work that's been done on on building superannuation as this really a pillar of retirement for people. So that that's a little bit of a confusing one for me as, as a conservative government that's pretty much been anti-super for quite a while. It feels um, now you have a situation where you're allowing people to withdraw money. You know how do you keep super there as as being that pillar um, for people's retirement? Well. It, um... Firstly, I would say that it takes a, a, a shock like this to turn even the most conservative into a socialist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that's happening by uh, uh, trying to open the uh, recovery from any means necessary. And that doesn't necessarily, of course, mean that it's uh, the appropriate move. Uh, but I also think this is, uh, if I may uh, be so bold, equally an indictment on super funds themselves. Um, I would encourage super funds as part of their engagement, uh, maybe to send out questionnaires to their members and saying, how can we help you? Uh, What's going on? Again, the whole, you know, if we look at the differentiating um, feature of, of an industry fund vis-a-vis a commercial fund. It's not for profit. And it's supposed to be, you know, someone that is a, like a colleague or a membership uh, a, a concept, a co-op, if you like. Um, if that's true, then this is the moment where the super fund needs to be more engaged with the member as a confidant, as a, a, an equal member of uh, of that actual super fund. And perhaps it could be that if, uh, if after this, people submit this questionnaire and it's clear that they are in dire straits, um, you can, the super fund can either say, okay, fine, we, can, we, wouldn't, uh, we accept that you may want to draw out of your super fund, but it could also say to other, fund, other members, no, this is not the time. You have enough cash flow happening. You have enough in your bank. Do not sell your fund. Now, I appreciate this requires man hours, Uh, but maybe through robo-advice, who knows? But we have to be um, proactive. We have to show some creativity in how we engage with the members. And I would argue that there is... Again, this is gonna sound like I'm being critical. I'm not, I'm just being observant. But there is a huge gap where the super funds lie, where financial services are, they're almost at equal, yet the way they're managed, many of them, or overseen, is still very much at the antiquated industry fund level. And we need to, change that. There's been a huge push uh, to increase diversity of boards. I am a believer that at the end of the day, the board of a large super fund should not look that different from the board 
of any other large corporation. There, um, there, there has to be a focus on what that particular board member will bring to the equation and how they can add value. I don't think we're necessarily there. And just one example is, again, it's moments like these that require this ingenuity, that require this art, how do we think outside the box? How do we deliver that? And I'm not convinced that the way many super funds are themselves configured right now, it would allow them to do that, even though they have huge internal teams, even though they have growing internal teams, even though they have uh, lovely TV ads, the underlying infrastructure, once you peel that layer, is really, in some cases, and I'm, I'm sorry if this sounds critical, not too different to where it was in the 1990s. And so, again, all these things, ironically, are pushing us down this funnel that will end up with a national fund. The, the internal teams is a, is a really interesting one, right? There, it, it, It's become really the, the go-to place for a lot of super funds. And some of, some of, uh, have rightly, rightfully, I would say, been quite slow and, and constantly evaluating it. Others have just gone in head first. Yeah. Um, and they've never actually experienced the market market crisis. Now yeah. you've got internal teams, you now need to manage those teams because they're, they're managing money themselves directly. Uh, and how do you manage that team at the same time as manage the rest of the team that's doing outsourced um, you know, funds management? It's a really difficult challenge when you start to look at performance. And now you have a whole governance issue in terms of what do you do with some of these internal internal teams that you know their performance, you would hope it's done okay. But if it has not, then, then what challenges do you face? Well, one of the, the great lies, uh, I, as you may know, Alex, uh, I came from a large internal team. I was with the New South Wales State Super, which uh, back in my days in the uh, mid-1990s was not only one of the largest super funds of its day, it was probably the first that internalized um, uh, funds management. Um, and at the end of the day, when the uh, bearing scandal occurred, uh, Michael Egan, the then treasurer of the New South Wales government, uh, came to the stark reality that the government was not only still uh, beholden to the principal risk of the pension, but also now held the agency risk, meaning that if something went wrong operationally within the internal team, it would have to be the fund and therefore the members or taxpayers who would have to replenish, replenish such a loss. And so we were sold. Uh, what concerns me is that, um, as you correctly pointed out, is not the internalization. It's the questions that were asked to get to internalization is where many have failed. And the questions that weren't asked is probably more concerning. What do we do if something goes wrong? Now, to prove that is a dislodgement, if you like, uh, many funds, super funds, will rate an external manager typically between three to five years. 
Now, when I ask them, how long do you rate your internal team? They'll say five to seven. My next obvious question is why? Why such a long lapse? The other concern that I have is when I talk about, talk with my friends in super funds and then talk about internalization, and we're talking about the difficulty in, in finding true talent, uh, because that is true regardless of whether you're self-managed or whether you're externally managed. As uh, many of my super friends were saying, well, one of the things that attracts the talent is that they don't have to market to, uh, to the outside world. And that I disagree with completely. uh, You have to, uh, it might not be outside the membership base, but the demand to discuss this with the members only rises. And now more than ever, that internal team should be front and center, discussing it as though they're discussing it, not to their peers, not to other fund managers, discussing it as though they're talking to someone across the fence, to their friends, and discussing it in a manner that is not basically um, mimicking and restating everything that you saw on the media. That is where the internal teams need to step up. And that is, again, I haven't really seen that Now, granted, it hasn't really been that long, but again, I hadn't really seen many internal teams get in front and center. So this goes back to what I'm saying before. There is a a, um, divide that exists with some of these large funds whereby they're creating the infrastructure which uh, allows them to look like many retail funds albeit for member profit as opposed for profit itself, but they haven't necessarily changed their marketing, their engagement, and even their operational uh, governance and board infrastructure to make it look and bring it closer to the broader world. And this is another example. It's interesting that a lot of funds are obviously pushing down the internalized team approach when there's just such a peer awareness to all of them. Because one of the things I would have thought with an internal team, yes, you can save money on costs, and that seems to be the big push. It's the ability to save basis points here, basis points there. But the other benefit of internal teams would be to have some sort of an edge that other people don't have um, and to generate returns. But given the fact that they're also peer aware, and the constraints and the mandates that I'm assuming these internal teams are going to have to manage money to, I can't see how they're really going to move the dial. And and that's one of the things that's really quite interesting to me is these super funds becoming quasi, you know, management firms, um, but yet still having a lot of constraints on them because of their, you know, willingness to be so peer peer driven. Yeah, but don't forget, um, as we moved away from beta delivering CPI plus three or four or five, and now in this new environment, even pre, even pre, excuse me, um, coronavirus, but definitely post GFC, uh, it's hard to find any asset class that delivers CPI plus three, the beta, where the beta delivers that. And so typically what's happened with these internalizations in order to manage that, 
is they manage it by having a benchmark aware constraint. So the same constraints that you just spoke about would be true with any benchmark aware product that's sold in the market. Now, what some of these mega sovereign wealth funds, because as you know, my background is obviously uh, has been working with many of them. Uh, my previous employer had a very strong representation with sovereign funds, not just in Asia Pacific, but globally, is that some of these funds are now buying beta through alternative sources, be it smart beta, be it factor portfolios, whatever you want to call it. Um, and then what they seek to drive the alpha, what they do is they allocate smaller but more numerous allocations to highly concentrated benchmark agnostic funds. And so ironically, what's happening here is that as funds begin to internalize going towards a, uh, a team, it would be an agency suicide to hire and create an internal team that is benchmark agnostic and highly concentrated. Why? Because if and when the manager's wrong, they're going to be wrong by a big margin relative to the bench. So how they manage that agency risk is to say, we're going to save money on um, benchmark aware funds by stop giving them out and doing it internally. And some of these funds, however, because they're now so large, they, they're not even looking at the benchmark agnostic options anymore, outside sourced. So if they're not induced to create a benchmark agnostic fund internally, and they're too big to access it externally, they're gonna be beholden many ways to this roller coaster ride that we call volatility. And I, you know, if, if, if I were uh, to paint a perfect picture, I would, and I wanted to internalize that funds, I wouldn't internalize it with um, one internal team. I would internalize it with maybe five or six different teams. Um, that are all uncorrelated, but equally have strong benchmark agnostic funds. And then I would get my beta from a cheaply sourced factor portfolio. Now that isn't a perfect world. Where reality comes in is that uh, the cost of doing that, even for the biggest of the Australian super funds is, is still prohibitive let alone the agency risk embedded by holding an agnostic manager who massively underperforms in any one period. Look, it's a, it's a really interesting challenge that, that the funds have, right? Because they're still trying to generate performance. And then they're also still expected to be there for the community. And, you know, I guess one of the things I wanted to sort of transition to is sort of the pressure that super funds have to be these good corporate citizens. You know, so there's been this continual talk around ESG and what they're doing more locally in their communities, um, which you know it, it has a, it has an impact on performance. So the funds claim that it's uh, you know it's 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 net positive, um, it reduces the drawdown risk, 
But you know, there's there's that piece to the constraint of of the fund as they set up their teams that they need to consider. You know, and the other issue that sort of comes to me in this whole this whole market is that it feels like the conservative government also sees super as part of almost nation building as well. And and re and that that will come back to the forefront where super's asked to do more. So it's firstly they take the twenty thousand out. It almost feels at the next stage, you know, if the economy continues to slow down, that super funds will be called on to provide more in terms of a, a nation building aspect as well, whether it's supporting corporate funds, providing more infrastructure, more real estate. Um, you know, this this adds now a, another challenge to these teams as they look to try and manage um, manage performance. Well, in a way, Singapore has done that with GIC and Temasek, right? They, um, uh, the Temasek is the, um, if you like, the, the investment bank run by the government uh, to look at these deals, uh, domestic deals or international deals that benefit Singaporeans. And GIC, of course, is the fund that manages all the assets. Um, to your point, though, um, I think choice changed everything uh, in, in, in managing towards the benefit of a nation and in managing towards the benefit of the industry. Uh, um, when I say benefit of the industry, I'm referring to the members, not the actual industry itself. Um, so some of the large mega funds are um, still hold their industry roots clearly and some of the industry membership base clearly but they also have a uh, more sizable representation of non-industry participants. And so they need to look at these things commercially uh, and for uh, agnostic, and is it for the, in the best interest of each individual member? So I get all that. And uh, where perhaps um, I would challenge that and agree with you, however, is that at the end of the day, you know, if we say we're going to be communal, then the next question is, what are you doing about it? Can you name me five things that are indicative of what you're referring to? Because it's almost been, if I can give you an exaggerated example, it's almost like we've made, we've turned Goldman Sachs into Vanguard. You know, whereby we tell the world we're there to maximize returns. We're 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 much better at that, but we're communal. We're cooperative. We we are uh, for profits of members, hmm. and I'm not sure the two necessarily mix. Um, and to add on top of that, if we look at its basic principle of what super innovation is, it's probably one of the most boring industries there there are. It's collecting members' assets, investing it, and then as they retire, let them draw out. But um, in the quest to become competitive with the outside world, have we lost some of our roots is the question I would pose. Is it really necessary to be a Goldman Sachs uh, under the clothing of Vanguard? I don't think so. Yeah, look, it's um, it's a really interesting conversation in terms of you know superannuation. 
you know, as I think the choice the choice angle is is a big one. Um, I think the fact that Super Funds were so keen to promote daily navs um, and their performance daily, you know, for for such a long time, and people were becoming addicted to seeing their their balance go up, and now you have a situation where a lot of the funds have reduced it. They've reduced that transparency. Uh, you can't get access to daily navs. So the the you know the system has grown a lot um, based on this ability to drive huge returns and and show those returns to their members. Um, and then as soon as something goes wrong, they're very very lax in terms of promoting you know what what their performance is and and really what they're doing. Um, which comes back to the whole the whole relevance of of uh, super funds um, and how they're going to need to change in in a new world. Um, and that's where the nation building and their expectation it was what I was sort of driving at i guess maybe sort of taking it a little bit close to home um in terms of sort of superannuation and and the actual impact to to individuals obviously with the with the crisis of of corona i guess what i wanted to touch on with you i know you spent a lot of time on it is around mental health and isolation because this is a really hard time for for people that have lost their jobs um and it's also a very hard time for for a lot of retirees that are approaching that that period of their life um i guess curious to hear your thoughts i know you've done a lot of work in this area um you know i guess any words of wisdom for for people in this in this sort of uh time of their life well the first advice i would give is turn off the news don't turn it on if you are going to turn it on turn it on for the hour slot and then that's it um and maybe err on uh, listening to the news of ABC or, or a national broadcaster who is less prone to try to, uh, um, in, I guess, ignite our primal instinct of uh, greed and fear. Um, and I say that with respect to my uh, journalist friends, but um, it, it, particularly in the mass media, uh, some of the reporting that's going on is downright um, preposterous, if not uh, very dangerous and irresponsible. Um, that's because the media is not accountable. Uh, the government is accountable. Uh, super funds are accountable. Banks are accountable. Your lawyer is accountable. But the media can say whatever the hell they want to and walk away from it. Um, I, I remember I, I saw a, a reporter ask a, an expert, do you think this could go on for six months? to which the, uh, the experts said, look, anything is possible. So sure, but you know, anything is possible. Um, and then he, he talked about just kind of focus on the here and now, et cetera. And then he said some uh, very sound advice about staying at home and, and now flatten the curve, all the things you would expect them to. The headline from that was experts predicts that this could go on for more than six months. That's not what the gentleman said. Now I pose that because um, mental health doesn't just include uh, depression, but also includes anxiety. And I would argue there are more people with anxiety disorders than there are with depression. Too many to count for both, but, and this is not a contest of which is greater than the other. Just saying that uh, anxiety disorders are very, very common and therefore are um, heightened under such extreme circumstances. And so what I tell my friends uh, about this is 
this is not the 1918 Spanish flu to, uh, and this is certainly not the black plague. Uh, I, I saw one report uh, likening, because I spoke to an expert, quote unquote, likening it to the black plague and says, well, I think we've moved on from leeches since then. Um, and, or even, you know, likening the, the steepness of the Australian curve to the, what happened in China and Italy. The difference, of course, is that we have more screening now, still not enough, but we have more screening now than uh, those other countries did when, in the early phases. So it is different. Um, and sometimes I see people predicting stock markets, you know, and uh, I think this is going to become a depression. We're going to go back into a 1930s depression. And so they asked me, what do you think about that, Rob? And I said, well, whenever you see the stock market fall by 10% one day and rise by 11% the following days, that's indicative that no one knows what's going on. And so you have to, fit for your own sanity, you have to filter. Now, there is a bright side from all this. The bright side of all this is that uh, as more and more people do stay home, they are connecting more uh, strongly with their family, the majority. And in the free time between their work at home and uh, connecting with their family, uh, they're also reaching out to other friends. So I've, I, I've received and I've been calling people as well. And uh, I just received a call not long ago from a good friend of mine that says, I'll leave it to a pandemic to have my friends call me. That's quite, quite nice. Um, but I think that if I could give you, again, the, the uh, I guess, advice on the mental health is to look at the anxiety levels, not just as it affects you, but as it affects your loved ones and friends and loved ones. And uh, for those with families, uh, my wife had a wonderful idea over dinner. We discussed it and um, we discussed what are the issues that are concerning you as a family. And I aired my own concerns, my own, um, you know, the things that keep me awake at night, so to speak. And we discussed them through and, you know, listening to my son and daughter to uh, listen to me and then respond accordingly gave me a great deal of comfort. And I hope that uh, my discussing with them gave them in return some comfort as well. So, uh, I spoke earlier of the need for member engagement. Well, I would argue that the need for engagement extends just beyond members. It in includes loved ones. It includes family. Uh, particularly vulnerable, of course, are the elderly. One from the uh, uh, fear, um, right uh, fear that is, that they're more vulnerable than the young ones. And so therefore seeing people has greater risk and uh, typically the older generation has um, better track record in engaging with families because they lived longer without the smartphone um, and without Facebook and what have you. But now they're getting less and less contacts. Even those in homes are getting less and less contacts and particularly those who are living alone are getting less and less contact. And so uh, what we're doing, um, my family, my wife's family, is we're having semi-regular family reunions, albeit via Zoom and uh, a video conferencing. Is, is it the best? No. Is it better than face-to-face? -face? No. As a touchy-feely person, I miss a good hug. 
let alone giving one. But I know that what, what, whereas that will return, um, what I have to focus on right now is not giving people hugs, but uh, getting to the precursor, which is engaging with them. And uh, this is very serious time. Um, whatever happens to the economy, whatever happens to the corona, uh, there is not a Malthusian end of the world. We will adapt. We're one of the only uh, beings on earth that uh, can adapt to live in an Antarctica or at the Amazon. Uh, and therefore we will adapt and come through this. Um, what concerns me isn't so much that, what concerns me is um, how people process um, the need to adapt, uh, given that every time they turn on the news, they are uh, uh, flooded with sometimes exaggerated, unproven, unscientific um, responses. And uh, what concerns me as well is that uh, some in the media, because they're not accountable, um, they are being very critical of uh, some governments, in some cases, in some issues, of course, they're, um, they're right to be so. Um, but is it, is it true to be right across the board? The closure of schools, um, that has ramifications above and beyond just the individual health. Um, some towns, uh, you know, they don't have the luxury of having daycare. Uh, some families don't have the luxury of having a, a grandmother to drop the kids off. Um, and how do we manage that? It's too complex to allow anyone to find you an easy solution. Um, but it's not that complex to talk it through with your friends and loved ones. And if we were to assume the best case scenario um, that this will go through over time, then we need to use that as our ground from where, uh, from which we speak from, uh, speak in a level-headed way and being conscious that uh, some are in a rabbit's hole, a rabbit's hole caused by heightened anxiety. And uh, the way we address these issues is not to negate them, but to talk them through, to be present, uh, even via Zoom or the phone call, and, uh, and let the person be heard, let the person's um, anxieties come out. Because as we all know, holding on to them only allows it to brew as opposed to really put in the bed. Look, I think that's a it's a fabulous place to end, and I think the the whole ability of this uh, coronavirus to actually bring people together and have a little bit more tolerance and compassion for others is probably one of the hopefully good things that comes out of this. And then that comes back to your story. It comes back to to my family and uh, a lot of friends that reached out that I probably haven't heard for heard from for quite a while. So I think that's a really good good place to to end the podcast in terms of a positive light of of how this. Uh, uh, situation both you know on a humanitarian level and a financial level can can actually have some some benefits so thank, thank you very you. much rob for for your time today thank you alex and uh, thank you everyone for um uh, uh, listening to my views and thoughts i really appreciate it thank you